Hello and welcome to this special Spectator podcast, 74 years of the NHS past and present. I'm Isabel Hardman and we're going to be doing this in association with AbbVie, who we're very grateful to for this podcast. Well, as the NHS reaches its 75th anniversary next year, the service has never been under greater strain. The pandemic has created record waiting lists of almost 7 million in England alone. Every month, tens of thousands of accident and emergency patients are left to wait for more than 12 hours, with ambulances queuing up outside. Other long-term challenges, such as an ageing population, are also coming to a head. Now, on this episode, we're taking a long view. We're going right back over the history of the service, right back to the beginning, and to more recent events in the past few decades to talk about what the NHS was founded for. Why is it struggling now? What are the improvements and support it desperately needs? And I'm joined by an absolutely stellar panel of podcast speakers. I have Alan Milburn, the former Secretary of State for Health in the new Labour government. I have Anne Milton, former Minister for Health, the former Deputy Chief Whip for the Conservative Party, and Philip Schwab, who currently serves as the Area Director for Government Affairs for Western Europe and Canada for AbbVie. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And to kick off, I'll come to you first, Alan. Your understanding of the way in which the health service has changed from its original founding principles and how perhaps you saw that in action when you were health secretary. Well, the NHS was the product of a particular era, you know, the post-war era. And it was a time, curiously, of both pessimism and optimism. You know, pessimism because of what had happened and the horrors of the Second World War, an optimism about the future, and it was part of this broader program of change, the welfare state, comprehensive education, and, of course, the critical element, most important building block of all, this new National Health Service, which, you know, emerged really as a sort of consequences of the Second World War, as I say, in this spirit of something that has got to emerge from all of this, but also the sense that what had gone before wasn't working and wasn't really fair. So you you had the NHS established on the basis of a very simple principle, which is it was going to be the scale of your need, not the size of your wallet that would dictate the care that you get. That's a principle that I think is, you know, pretty central to what it means to be British. And it's one of the reasons that the NHS is a source of pride for so many people in Britain. There was also a subtext, which hasn't quite come to fruition, which is that if you created this thing and dealt with the disease burden that was all too obvious, then over time what would happen is that expenditure on healthcare from the governmental point of view would fall rather than rise. So the NHS has been a great thing and has you know, dealt with illness and disease and has actually, in my view, been quite a great innovator over the last 74, 75 years, as you were saying. But what definitely hasn't happened is that expenditure has been falling. It's been consistently rising. And then there's always a question, and like the truth about the NHS is that approximately every 20 to 25 years, there is a mega crisis. And there was a crisis at the point where I took over as health secretary. And there is, in my view, a quite unprecedented crisis today. It's a breaking point. And actually, I think there is a very real question about, in its current form, whether it is sustainable, certainly how it's organized. And so this comes around, and what then happens is either... There is a brave new dawn and there's change and reform and so on. And you saw that with Mrs. Thatcher and Ken Clark's reforms. 
And I think you saw it with my reforms back in the day. And the real question is, can we put it on a footing that is going to be sustainable for the long term? And you agree with Alan's assessment there that the health service is really at one of its worst points in the whole of its history. I wouldn't say it's at one of its worst points. And Alan's summary of how it came into being is is spot on, based on your need, not your ability to pay. Although I think it's important to note that, you know, by 1952, charges for some, for prescriptions, for instance, had been introduced. So even in its very early days, there was a struggle about affordability, and that has continued. I think this is a pivotal moment with waiting lists as long as they are. But, you know, I trained as a nurse in 1974, and there have been crises throughout the time since then, to be honest. When I was working as a community nurse, for instance, in Hackney, the vast majority of the staff in the community, and we talk a lot about hospitals, we don't always talk about community services, but the vast majority of staff were people who'd come to this country, mostly from the Caribbean, to meet some of the staffing challenges. And those have continued. I think the thing that distinguishes the NHS is we believe it's a demand-led service when in fact it's a supply-led service. The more you do, the greater people's expectations, more technology comes in to diagnose problems, more high-tech solutions to care, and so the costs will grow year on year and will continue to grow. So although I will not be the first former politician to say it's time that we look at that, it really is time because we do have a significant crisis in terms of elective surgery and in terms of our ability to deal with emergencies. Philip, you were nodding there when Anne described the health service as a supply-led service. You've also got a, a perspective from across the Atlantic because you have worked in government in the United States as well. So just, just give us your perspective on the health service from someone who, who has seen a, a very different way of organising healthcare provision. Sure, thanks. Uh, yes, I, I do happen to have a, a couple of perspectives. Coming from Canada, I have a, have a perspective on the Canadian healthcare system as well, which, which is a universal system for physicians and for hospitals, but not for pharmaceuticals. So in that way, it's, it's somewhat different than the, uh, the National Health Service. The U.S., I think, is, is a system apart. It's a means-led led system. If you have the means to access excellent care, you will be able to access excellent care. So I think that's a system that's a little bit of a part. From my perspective, working in Canada and, and across, across Europe right now, I can say that the crisis in the NHS is not unique. I think the Canadian system in particular is also in quite a bit of crisis. We see hospitals in Ontario closing their emergency wards on the weekends due to lack of staff. We see uh, delays in, in surgery and diagnosis as well. In France, we see significant uh, staffing shortages also in hospitals. So really across the continent, systems are struggling to recover from, from COVID 
and to rebuild their systems and, and, and are thinking about how can they do things differently? How can we move more care out of hospitals? How can we have more patient and community-led programs for addressing especially chronic conditions? And getting reserving those hospital beds for what really are the acute or surgical interventions that are necessary. So I just say it's, I'm shaking my head because this is not a unique problem in the UK. It's his systems around around Europe and across the Atlantic are struggling. And I think it's worth adding. Philip is absolutely right. Look, you know, there's not a healthcare system in the world that wasn't stripped of its limits as a consequence of the COVID pandemic. But let us also be very clear that if you take the access problem, for example. This is not purely a product of COVID or the pandemic. Waiting lists and waiting times have been rising consistently for the best part of a decade. So if we keep doing what we've been doing, the chances are that we'll get what we've been getting. And that is deteriorating performance, not just financially, but clinically. And the real question today is, have we really got to the point where we recognize that we've got a legacy system? And I think we have in the sense that Despite the exhortations of the politicians over the years, the vast majority of expenditure in the NHS goes on hospital-based care, when most people would, within the system and indeed outside, would say the priority really is how do you keep patients out of hospital and healthy? And so we've got a system that isn't really set up to do that in truth. So the question for us today is, are we going to be able to use this crisis in a sense to leverage it, to pivot from what we have today to an entirely different set of objectives and indeed approaches. And I think what is different, certainly from my day when I was doing the job, and of course, this was what you wanted to do. You've always wanted to be able to intervene upstream and to get ahead of the disease burden. We know that one in four patients who are in hospital today shouldn't be there. We know that we can prevent emergency admissions, probably not one in five of them out of, out of the system if we intervene early enough. What is different today from 20 years ago when I was doing the health job is that you now have the tools to do it because you've got an amazing, the twin advances that we're seeing across the world in healthcare, which is really a revolution. You've got advances in data analytics and advances in genomic science. And if you align these two things together, we should finally be able to change the nature of the system and indeed the model of care. Because you know, broadly, the model of care has stayed the same since 1948. We keep admitting people into hospital you know, who shouldn't be there. They get in, we can't get them out. That's a problem with social care, by the way. So these two things are two sides of, of the same coin. But we now have an opportunity. You know, for me, the very strange thing about the debate on the NHS is it's the sort of dog that hasn't barked really in the debate because I would have thought that the decision makers now should be focused on precisely this. How are we able to harness the benefits of these technological advances to fundamentally change the nature of healthcare? And instead, the debate is still on how much money, how many staff, and of course, these things are important. I'm not saying you don't need more staff and and so forth. But what we've got to do is shift the terms of the debate and ensure that as we're talking about staff, we're not just talking about numbers, we're talking about roles and functions and types of staffing that we're going to need for a very different era, as Philip was saying, which is one where chronic disease absorbs the vast majority of the NHS expenditure. Anne? I'm going to come in a, a little bit because what Alan says is undoubtedly the case, but politicians have been wishing this for 20 years, I mean, going back to before your time, Alan, that some of the technology was available a long time ago. 
and we haven't used it. And I think the one thing that we have not talked about is the inequalities, not just in public health, so <clears throat> rates of smoking, rates of obesity, but access. So although in theory, the NHS is available based on need, it's not equally available. And you can, you can look at report after report after report, you know, some of the ones that Michael Marmot has published that demonstrate that more deprived communities do not get the same access as more affluent communities. So we have got an inequality problem. I think one of the problems is, is that politicians are absolutely terrified of the NHS. They always talk about hospitals, they always talk about acute care. Community care is just not as sexy to politicians. If you look at, say, a small thing, but the exemptions, the disease exemptions for prescriptions, that list has not been touched since, I think, 1967, because politicians are too scared to go near it. So although Alan's ideas might be right, it's going to take brave politicians to do what needs to be done. And some of that will involve taking on some of the vested interests, the medical interests of the staff within the service. It's fascinating. You, you mentioned politicians being frightened, Anne, because... I think arguably the, the most fearless politician of, of modern times, Margaret Thatcher, even she was frightened of the NHS and ended up shying away from, from anything more major than the internal market reforms when she was obviously being urged to, to go much further by some on her uh, wing of politics. Philip, can I just bring you into just to talk about some of the rising costs within the NHS because as Alan mentioned one of the fundamental miscalculations that was made by Beveridge and by Bevan was that the cost of the service would go down as unmet need was then treated. But that didn't happen because technology and because treatments got better and more personalised. I mean, is it just the case that these treatments have, have got more advanced or is it also, you know, big bad pharma who are pushing up the costs and, you know, taking all the money from the NHS? I think I know what your answer might be, but uh, but just... Uh, I'm going to address Alan's comment first about a lot of the discussion about technology and, and the systems in the NHS becomes about what's the cost and, and how many people do we need, rather than what is the outcome that we expect for patients. And that's really, I think, where we see the interface of this debate about cost and, and structure and outcome. Right now at, within the NHS, often new technologies are, they are portioned based on, on controlling costs rather than on how can we have the best outcome for the patient, or rather than thinking about how does treating a patient with a suboptimal intervention actually increase our costs? Why, why would you keep a patient on a suboptimal therapy when a proven therapy which has a better outcome is available for saving a, a few pounds per month? You know, I think that, that's part of the debate where we are right now. We have, we have various gates that are put up in front of patients for accessing the more advanced treatments, whether they be you know, device, uh, medical, or, or other types of interventions. You have to fail three suboptimal treatments before you can have the treatment that actually has been proven to work. You need to travel to a specialist center in order to receive a specialist care, which 
maybe could be administered in the local community, to Anne's point about disadvantaging certain populations in certain communities. If you cannot travel to that regional center or you cannot find uh, the childcare that's necessary for you to go have a hospital-based treatment when a home-based treatment is available and could have a better outcome, these are important considerations about about the structure of the system and really breaking that, that model of cost control as a gateway to a better treatment. Alan, just harking back to your time in government, and you mentioned that now is possibly an opportunity to, to start a new system or to at least have a, a new organisation. Are you talking about big reforms? Or are you talking about the sort of other side of what you did when you were in government, which was to, to really push the NHS to, to meet a lot of targets alongside a lot of money? My suspicion is that there is going to be a welter of ideas that stuck on the table over the course of this next period, because that's what crises do. They produce a ferment of ideas. I think some ideas will be distractions. So, you know, there'll be a debate yet again, rather tediously, about whether the funding model is right or wrong. Should we move away from general taxation? Should we move to more private pay, social insurance? Honestly, it's a total distraction. The issue is really much more about how the system is organized and what it is intended to do. So I think, you know, there are the makings of an agenda for change that make a lot of sense. But the truth is, you've got to be honest with the public, as I hope we were, you know, 20 years ago, we said it was going to be a 10-year program of change, and it took a long period of time. And in the end, we sort of got there in terms of improved outcomes and far lower waiting times, of course. But the building blocks really are about how you ensure that the resources are deployed in the right way, so that you're not just ploughing all the money into hospitals, but that you're building up your primary community infrastructure, as, as Anne was rightly saying, not least to deal with these appalling health inequalities that COVID has really laid bare. You've got to think about how you integrate with other services, because the NHS is but one player on the health pitch, local government, local communities, local organizations, employers, these are all important, med tech, big pharma, and so on and so forth, the new tech plays, you know, the most exciting things I see in health today, frankly, come from the technology sector, they don't, with respect, Philip, come from your sector, they come from tech, that's where the action is, it's incredible, you know, some of the stuff that I see, I chair some of these businesses, and, and it's amazing what is going on, so... I think there's a real opportunity to be honest, to be long-termist, to say, to open up with the public about what is necessary and how long it's going to take, and to forge an entirely different set of relationships. But you've got to get the mindset right. The mindset has got to be about how do we keep people healthy and out of hospital rather than getting them in? How do we deal with these health inequalities, as Anne rightly says, How, therefore, do we build alliances and partnerships that enable us to do so? And then what is the organizational structure, the staffing structure, the estates planning, the workforce that you need for the future? And unless you do it in a holistic way, what happens is that the politicians do get scared because they end up in iterative mode rather than in strategic mode. And so I think you know, this is the blessing of a crisis. (laughs) It sort of, it does force decisions onto the table that otherwise, frankly, wouldn't have happened. And I can say that with some experience, you know, when we were dealing with these issues back in the early 2000s, you know, most people were surprised that the Labour government was prepared to go far further than the Tory government had ever gone on 
relationships with the private sector, choice for patients, transparency that so that patients could see which was good, which was less good, how you used financial incentives, how money flowed around the system. So if you've been in public policy and you've been in health policy, as both Anne and I have, honestly, you've got to be an optimist. So it's easy to be pessimistic right now and easy to say there's a council to despair, the politicians will never go there. I'm actually an optimist about it because I can see that we've got the tools to do the job and the crisis that forces the politicians to grasp metals that otherwise they wouldn't do. And I think the other thing, Alan, is that you've got a government with a big majority. So actually the government is in an ideal position to think in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise done because it's got a big majority. Arguably only two years left before a general election, but it could get on and do things. I do think that we always start at the wrong end of the pipeline. That actually, I think it's worth considering the far end, which is the social care, care and the community end. And successive governments have failed to address that, utterly failed to address that. So let's get that right. Why have they failed? So we, what, part of the problem, I think, is, is with the cost, because you can put in place lots of different answers for social care, but there's always... There's always caveats about people paying for themselves. So until you have, I I personally think, I have for 30 or 40 years heard people talk about the fact that we really must join health and social care together. And it never happens because the budgets are separate. My feeling would be if you combine those budgets so the healthcare had a vested interest in the social care, you won't get real change. And, And I am an optimist. Like Alan, I do believe that things can be done. You've got this fantastic public goodwill towards the NHS. Use that goodwill to join social care with it and you can start to make some progress so you can address every single step of the pipeline. Health inequalities, nonetheless, despite, as somebody said to me recently, one of the problems with the public health professionals is that they're very good at admiring the problem and Nothing ever changes. Health inequalities actually have got worse. Arguably, they have been further entrenched by COVID. So we do have to do something about that. But let's get the pipeline so things can move. And then all the technology, all the wonderful drug innovations, you know, big pharma is used to be a dirty word until vaccines came along. I think it's less of a dirty word. Actually, you know, big pharma cure diseases. They, they enable people to live at home, to live healthy lives. So, as I say, until you look at the service as a whole, the whole of that pipeline, you won't get real progress. Listening to Anne and Alan just there, I mean, I almost think we should end this podcast with a play out of Things Can Only Get Better. Philip, are you as optimistic as those two? It's a good tune. <laughs> it was a good tune. It was a good tune. Philip, are you, a, are you an optimist as well? You won't be surprised that as someone who works for the developer of, uh, of medicines and, and new pharmaceutical technologies, that I'm very positive about the future of healthcare. I think right now we are at the cusp of uh, really a, a revolution in life sciences, bringing together medicines, medical devices, digital technologies that can really improve the the diagnosis and treatment and long-term outcomes of patients with both acute and chronic conditions. 
I think as Western societies, we have invested heavily in the basic research for, for medical sciences. Certainly the UK's ambition to be a life sciences superpower, a life sciences powerhouse is, is evident of that investment and commitment. And we've also invested heavily in the institutions that evaluate the, the safety and efficacy and the cost effectiveness of these interventions. So I think if we really want to harness the potential of, of our deep investments in medical science and medical technology, we need to trust those institutions and really find ways to break down the barriers in partnership across the, the healthcare system to better utilize the results of those investments and fundamentally improve both the efficiency of the healthcare system and the outcomes for patients that need these new solutions. Alan, you were going to make a point, so I'll let you come no, in. No, I was just going to make a point. Look, I think the structural changes that Anne was talking about are very important, the integration of health and social care. But the truth is, look, we've all done structural change over the years. What really hasn't changed is a much more fundamental thing, which is the model of care. So if you think about social care, for example, you know, all this really happened in the course of 40 years in terms of public policy in social care, particularly elderly care. The only change has been a transferal of institutions from the public sector to the private sector. That's all that's happened. But we still continue to put older people at the end of their lives in residential care rather than doing what they want to do, which is to be able to live out their last 1,000 days in their own homes, surrounded by the people that they love and the place that they've always been. You ask people, where do people want to die, for example? People don't want to die in hospitals or a care home. They want to die in their own home. Of course they do. So there's a model of care question that we have to address and not just the structural question. And that's where technology is your friend, not your enemy, because technology is going to be able to enable us by remote patient monitoring, by ensuring that you can do telemedicine, by looking after patients remotely, by providing support through technology to families, we're going to be able to shift how care is actually delivered and give families and patients what they want. And as a former nurse, how does care at home sort of telemedicine sit with you? Do you feel as though that would enhance the ability of your colleagues still in, in the sector to to do their jobs or does it feel a bit remote? No, not at all. I think Alan's absolutely right. And I think irrespective of the age of people, they can embrace technology and really enjoy it, actually. I think it's got a, a, a huge role to play. I remember when I was public health minister, somebody lobbying me because they'd invented a piece of technology and me saying with some despair, actually one of the problems is community services can't even use the telephone, let alone, you know, you know a, a phone call from the district nurse, from the, from the person who's giving care in the community, can be all that's needed to reassure the individual who's maybe a bit poorly or the family. So absolutely technology can come in. The trouble, I think the difficulty for the NHS is it's a very unwieldy machine. And Alan is right to say that structural changes all very well, but the response, the government response, NHS response really is to bring about new bodies. So the moment you talk about the NHS as an anchor institution, the local hospital, they form partnerships, they form partnership boards, and they don't actually get on and do something. So we need to create an environment in which local healthcare, be that GPs or hospitals, can innovate without interference 
from politicians, actually. And so, Philip, just off the back of those points from Anne and Alan, I wonder how much of a, a barrier the NHS itself can be to making these changes that will help itself, that it has really sort of ended up on some train tracks of this is how we always do things, or am I being unfair? Is it actually a very flexible, ever-changing organisation? Well, I think I think it is absolutely evident that the NHS is a flexible and ever-changing organisation. When you think of the state of medical science and medical technology that existed when NHS was formed and what exists today, it's clear that uh, the organization has adapted to both new technologies in medicine and, and new ways of delivering those technologies and, and delivering healthcare to the population. It's not always an easy transition, but the organization can be extremely flexible. I think what needs to happen in the future is a stronger focus on partnership. Partnership with the the, the providers of of technologies and services and the patients themselves to sort of break down some of the the formalities and the the barriers to to newer and and better treatments. And I think if we all approach that mindset of, of partnership with the healthcare system, I think we really can build an NHS of the future, one that really focuses on outcomes for patients uh, rather than structures and procedures. And I think, I think we have the, the teams in place and, and the motivation to do that today. Oh, look, this has been a fantastic discussion. I'm so grateful to the three of you for your different but ultimately quite optimistic perspectives on the NHS, on whether it has a future and what that future might look like. So thank you so much to Abvi for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to Alan Milburn, to Anne Milton and to Philip Schwab for joining us today.